I guess, information, as he was saying, he's just here to inform. We, we're not just supposed to hold the truth to ourselves as some sort of, oh, you're a sinner and you're in trouble. We're supposed to help them out of their trouble. We're supposed to help them out of the pits and the mire. So we're doing a series called Made for More. Next three, four weeks we'll do that. It's really a, a series about just evaluating where you are with your devotion to the Lord. I hope you're willing to do that. Um, if you're not, just candidly, you're going to be very uncomfortable for four weeks. <laughs> but I believe God's called our church to evaluate our devotion and just look at ourselves one week at a time, a few truths at a time, some scriptures, and see where we are and consider all that God has for us in this. So uh, we're going to start in devotion by looking at God's devotion to us. God is fully devoted to you. And I want to show you a couple of pictures of that this morning. If you believe, do you believe you were made for more? Do you believe you were made for more than you're living out in your life? How many of you believe you're living to your fullest potential in Christ? So if you believe you were made for more than you're living out in your faith life, in your life as a, as a follower of Christ, you're made for more. Raise your hand. No matter how you look at it, you have to, to understand what you're made for. You have to understand who made you and what he's done for you. You have to understand the sacrifice that Christ made for us. So we're going to start with grace. Imagine that, me teaching on grace. I know it's shocking. Um, but grace is the evidence of his full devotion to us. That's how you know he's fully devoted is because he showed you grace. And a lot of people have a hard time defining grace. I, I pulled up a video online somebody had done and it wasn't well done so I didn't feel the need to show it to you. But it was somebody trying to get people in the street to explain what grace is. And it just people don't know what grace really is. Um, that unmerited favor, you didn't deserve it. You actually deserve the opposite of what you're being given. And Christ is the perfect, perfect example of that. And so I just want to challenge you this morning to soak some grace in. And I'm going to give you, I hope, some, some truths. I was telling the ladies at the Home of Grace on uh, Friday. Well, I was there last night too. But Friday and last night I was telling them, you know, sometimes we don't understand, we think we get grace because grace is how we're saved, and so that's all there is to it. There's way more, way more to grace than that. And so let me just take you back a little ways. We're going to go back into the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 2. Um, I know I don't do a lot of Old Testament. I'm trying to work on that, by the way. So you might hear a lot of Old Testament this coming year. And uh, the context is really interesting. Israel is uh, captive to Egypt. They've been in captivity for years, really, since Joseph. Uh, went there and sort of, uh, as a matter of fact, Cody told, I don't know where Cody went, he told the story to the children last week about the about uh, Joseph uh, being in, uh, in, in prison in Egypt and then eventually he becomes a leader of Egypt uh, on the leadership level and so they support, uh, he actually protected them through this drought and all that, well that's how a bunch of Israelites got there, but they become enslaved to the Egyptians, the Egyptians world power as they were, eventually take over and, and enslave them. And so, and you might remember that there was this uh, this time where a bunch of, where there were too many slaves being born, and so they decided, the Egyptians decided we need to shut that down, and so they said all the male children uh, have to be slaughtered. But there was this one male child that got put in a, a little basket and set down in the bulrushes and, and pushed out into the river, remember that? His name was... Moses, right. And God allowed Moses, this one young man, to survive. He actually gets, uh, he's found by the, by the Egyptian people. 
himself. And so Moses is a Hebrew child, but he's going to be raised in an Egyptian environment by a Hebrew nanny because the Pharaoh's daughter needed a, needed a, a nanny for him. And so it turns out to be God protected him all through that. So Moses ends up with a complete education of the Egyptian way. He went to the finest schools. He would have seen uh, been to the finest elementary schools and high schools and colleges of, of Egypt for the time. He had been trained by the very best teachers and leaders in the country because he's, he's in the palace. But at the same time, at nighttime, he's got his, his Hebrew heritage being brought into his life uh, and he's beginning to understand there's a difference between the two. And at some point he goes out, Exodus chapter 2, verse 11, many years later when Moses had grown up, he went out to visit his own people and the, the Hebrews and he knew they were his people. That's important. He knew they were him. That's who he's from. And he saw how hard they were forced to work. Very important. How hard they were forced to work. During his visit, he saw an Egyptian beating one of his fellow Hebrews. After looking in all directions to make sure no one was watching, Moses killed the Egyptian and hid the body in the sand. And what I want you to take away from that verse, kind of a weird verse to start our series off with, what I want you to take away from it is that in Egypt, the Hebrew, the Jewish children, the Israelites, had to literally work very hard. They had to work very hard, and they were beaten while they were working. It was just a miserable, miserable life for them. Now, the story says Moses looked all around and made sure nobody was watching, but then we find out the next day that he learned somebody was watching because there's this story about this great uh, Egyptian leader that came into our deal and, and you know killed one of the guards that was beating us. And so Moses realized he has to leave and, and he actually flees the country at some point because he'd murdered somebody. And years pass, Exodus 2.23 says it this way, if you skip down a little bit in your verse, in your Bible. Exodus 2.23, years passed. King of Egypt died, but Israel continued, here's the phrase, to groan under their burden of slavery. They cried out for help. Their cry rose up to God. God heard their groanings, and he remembered his covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He looked down on the people of Israel and knew it was time to act. And I love, love that verse. But here's the thing I want you to take away from that. The people of Israel, God's chosen, who are in slavery in Egypt, are burdened by their slavery and they're groaning and crying out. So nothing good is really happening. If you're a slave in Egypt during that time, nothing good is happening for you. I mean, it's just a miserable, miserable time. And Exodus 6, verse 6, here's, here's sort of the rescue deal. Therefore, uh, the Lord saying to, to telling Moses, say to Israel... Tells Moses, tell Israel this phraseology. Say to Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, with mighty acts of judgment. Most of you have read enough of your Bible to know it's exactly what he did, right? So here's my question for you. Who... Freed Israel from slavery. Who freed him? God. Right. The Lord delivered them. Not Moses. We can give Moses some sort of leadership credit, and, you know, a little star on his lapel, you know, for being there. Yeah. By the way, he kind of 
whined his way through a bunch of it and resisted a bunch of it and got in trouble with God several times. One time God was just about to wipe him out and his wife had to rescue him. So there's all kinds of interesting challenges in all that. But, but here's the, the Exodus 6 is so important. Exodus 6, 6. I am the Lord God. I will bring you out from under the yoke of Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them and I will redeem you. God says, I got this. I will do all the work. Right? So, and then there's this process that goes by. You guys know the story because God did exactly what he said he would do. He did that exactly. But if you remember, there's these, there's all these plagues that have to happen and Pharaoh won't let go and the heart gets hardened and he won't let go and he won't let go and he won't let go. And finally God sends the ultimate plague, which is all the uh, children uh, are, are killed in this overnight deal. And ultimately the Israelite children are not. And Pharaoh's son dies and he's like, you can go, just go. And he sets them free. Now he's going to have a change of heart, as you all know the story very well. But uh, so he, he sets them free, even as they're being set free, listen, being set free from burdened, burdensome, wearisome, beating slavery, beaten down slavery, they're being set free. Even as that happens, the people of Egypt are giving them their goods. They're giving them uh, gold and silver and, and things of wealth to take with them. They're like, just go, just go, just go. So they're, be, they're beginning this journey of following God, right? Beginning this journey, God's pouring on these blessings to them. They're following God. They're leaving behind their slavery. They're moving to the promise with all these blessings. That's a pretty awesome picture, isn't it? And, and, and by the way, when you study the scriptures real well, the book of Hebrews makes this crystal clear, the, the land of Egypt is a picture of our sin life. That's the sin life we were born into and struggle in and live in. And God promised to redeem us from our sin life. And so Israel's being set free from Egypt is a picture of that. That's exactly um, what it looks like to have grace poured upon, upon you. Now, in the middle of the process, and I don't like, I hate to skip this verse because it's just too much fun. Uh, in the middle of the process, you remember they get outside the city and, and actually when you read the text really clear... There was one route they could take that the armies normally took um, that was safe. It had safe passage and safe travel. And it actually says God chose to send them because Israel doesn't have an army. Very important. He chose to send them sort of a back road way. Well, the back road way leads to a narrowing path that ends up at the Red Sea with two giant ravines on both sides of you. You're stuck in this funnel. It's a really bad place to be if you're being pursued, which is what's happened. The, the Pharaoh's had a change of heart. He rallies his troops and gets the army of the world power at the time. The army of Egypt comes tearing down upon them with all these chariots and all these soldiers and all these guys come tearing after them. And the people of Israel are stuck. They look like they're in a terrible, terrible place. Now, just remember, they were in a really, really terrible place, slavery, Right? Then all of a sudden, God uh, redeemed them, set them free, and, and now things look a little different, right? Because we're free, we've got all these goods and wealth, we're also stuck. We're stuck. We don't know what to do. <laughs> so Exodus chapter 14, if you want to follow along, it's a really great passage. If, you're a, if you've ever been in any leadership role, this is a fantastic passage. As a pastor, I absolutely love this little part right here. As Pharaoh approached, the people of Israel looked up and they panicked. No kidding. When they saw the Egyptians overtaking them. When you look back behind you, 
a million plus Israelites look back behind them and here, here's this cloud of dust, thundering hooves, you know, clattering, clanging armor and the Egyptian army that you've known all your life to be people that go out and terrorize other lands because you were raised in slavery under them, you know, and then they come back and beat you for fun, right? That group of guys is coming after you now. Nothing good's going to happen with that, right? So they cried out to the Lord, then they said to Moses, this is very important, why did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? Weren't there enough graves in Egypt? What have you done? I love the sarcasm of the Israelites. It reminds me of Americans, by the way. What have, what have you done to us? Why did you make us leave Egypt? Didn't we tell you this would happen while we were still in Egypt? We said, leave us alone. Let us be slaves to the Egyptians. It's better to be a slave in Egypt than a corpse in a free land in the wilderness. See, the wilderness is free. Now, is it better to be free or enslaved? Which one? Freedom. They've got their heads all messed up because they're in a panic. You kind of give them a little back. You can give them a pass. I mean, the, the world's largest army is pursuing them. You know, the world's superpowers on their heels. There's an ocean in front of them, the Red Sea. There's mountains on both sides, and they have no army. They're not set up with an army. They don't have, you know, they got stuff they could probably fight with. It's not very impressive, by the way. But they're not even set. There's no military leaders. There's no, hey, you're in charge of this, you're in charge of that. There's, you know, Joshua and Caleb and a couple others have kind of picked up some leadership roles in the process of getting out of town. But nothing's really in place. So we're in a mess, mess, mess. And we panic. We panic. And when we do, we start blaming spiritual leaders and then we start whining to God like he's done something wrong. I'm just going to ask you, has he done anything wrong? See, when he puts you in grace, and you leave slavery for grace, it's not going to be wrong anymore. It's going to be under his hand and under his plan. And so, so Moses says to the people, verse 13, don't be afraid. If you mark things in your Bible, you have to underline this. It's highly highlighted in mine. Just stand still, is what Moses tells the people. A million people listening to his leadership moment. This is a leadership moment, Jay. This is where you step up and you go, man, I'll tell you what we're going to do here. God's giving me a word, a sign. Just stand still and watch the Lord rescue you today. The Egyptians you see today will never be seen again. The Lord himself will fight for you. Just stay calm. Just stay calm and stand still and watch the Lord deliver you. Verse 15. Then the Lord said to Moses, What are you crying out to me for? Tell the people to get moving. <laughs> What's that whole stand still speech you just gave? He's like, stand still. There's an army coming after you. You know, and God moved the, the pillar of fire behind them to block the army long enough for the Red Sea to part, the land to dry out. You know, God dried all the ground out. And he told Moses, stretch out your staff, split the sea. Let's go, buddy. Here's Moses, the leader. Confident leader. Stand still and see the Lord. And the Lord goes, stand still. No. Tell your people to get moving. And, and then Moses goes, well, what I meant to say was, let's move. <laughs> you know, and he, he parts the Red Sea and they, you know, they go across on dry land. Divided the waters so that Israel can walk through the middle of the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians. They will charge after in after Israel. My great glory will be displayed through Pharaoh and his troops, his chariots and his charioteers. When my glory is displayed through them, all of Egypt will see my glory 
and know that I am the Lord. And you guys know that the, the charioteers become fish food when the Lord closes the sea back up and Israel, the mighty army of the Egyptians is destroyed and Israel who had no army, no defenses, is now even freer into the wilderness, right? And they're protected. It was never going to be a problem, by the way. God knew exactly where he was leading. Let me just make a couple of notes for you. Israel didn't have to fight. What they had to do was follow. Israel was freed and protected, just like he said he would. They were rescued and redeemed without a battle. They were rescued and redeemed without a battle. What a magnificent day. That's like our salvation day, by the way. You didn't battle for your salvation. Did you know that? The day God enlightened you to, to call out to him, to recognize your sinfulness and your need of him and you know your fear of, of hell, however that happened for you, whatever turned your heart to say, God, I need your help. I can't help myself. So I'm asking you to be my Lord and my Savior. Whatever prompted that, you didn't have to battle anything to do that. There was no army. There was no fight. It was revelation. God gave you insight. He, it, the Bible says in the New Testament, he manifests himself to you. He told you who he is and who you are and how you need him. He explained all that to you in your, in your inner man, in your inner spirit, in your spiritual life. He explained all that to you. You didn't battle it. He did. He did all the work. That's why we sang Glorious Day. Living, he loved me. Dying, he saved me. Buried, he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified freely forever. Right? One day he's coming. It's all him. He did all the work. So here's the grace moment that shows up huge for the Israelites. And what do they do? Well, they start with this beautiful, uh, what a great day. They sing songs. They sacrifice and offer. They, they worship. They praise God. They dance. There's a song written in, the, in the Exodus where they celebrated. What a great day. What a great life. Israel was once enslaved under this incredible burden of slavery where they're beaten all the time and they're groaning in pain and now they're set free. They're rescued and redeemed without even fighting a battle themselves. God did all the work for them. So it's grace upon grace. If you know your New Testament, there's that little phrase. Grace upon grace poured out to these Israelites. Grace upon grace. And then, one month later, Exodus chapter 16, verse 1, says this. While they're swallowed up by God's grace, like us, the whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. And on the 15th day of the second month after they'd come out of Egypt, in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron, the spiritual leaders. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate food we wanted. But you've brought us out in the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Remember that whole complaint thing they went through? By the way, they went through it a bunch. They were, they were set free from slavery of sin, from the, from, the, from the sin that was captivating them, captured them, and beating them and harming them, a life of torture, they were set free. And yet, they found a way to, in the middle of all that grace, to, 
say to you, grace sometimes slowly slips away from our thoughts. And we begin to see God as the one who's not helping anymore. As the one who's abandoned, forsaken, walked away, not there. Now I want you to, I want to ask you for one, just really clear in your head. Most of you know the Bible stories we're telling here. And you know that God's fixed to provide for them in a miraculous way. But how many of you think God meant for them to go into the desert and die of starvation? How many of you think that was the plan? Nobody here, because we, we got the whole story. But they do. <laughs> they're in the midst of it, and they're seeing, hey, what do we get? There's a million of us in the wilderness. What are we going to eat? What's going to happen? It was a real situation for them, right? Kind of like when something goes wrong in your world, when, when some sort of crisis happens, whether it's as simple as a, a car that's broke down and giving you fits, or a, a, a family member that's giving you fits, or a a situation at work that's driving you crazy and you don't know what you're going to do with it, whatever that crisis is that sort of stirs up in you, it's all of a sudden you feel like, well, Lord, what, are you, what have you done? Why are you doing this? What's happening? Right? And you, you start taking what is pure grace and trying to work yourself back into, listen, you're trying to work yourself back into a system that has some sort of checks and balances of law. You want, you want to go back to Egypt? You want to go back to where it's it's safer back there in your head? No, it's not. It never was safe back there. Nothing good happened in Egypt to Israel. Nothing. Right? The freedom is the wilderness and the journey they're on following God. By the way, it's going to lead to the promised land that God's going to give them flowing with milk and honey. So the journey is, is worth the walk. But they've chosen to just complain and struggle and whine. And they struggled to make grace the centerpiece of our lives. They, in other words, instead of focusing on what God has done for them, like in the songs they sang a month earlier, they're singing all these awesome songs. Now they're whining. And I'm saying that's dangerous for us. I'm saying as Christians, we can look at grace. It's not a one-time thing. It's every single day of our lives. Every part of your journey is filled with grace. You know what he's going to do next, right? Y'all know the story. He says, well, here's the deal. Just go outside tomorrow and there'll be manna in the morning for you. I'm going to give you manna from heaven. So Brother Robert studied it with me. It's an angel, angel cake. It's angel food cake. <laughs> you get angel cake for breakfast. But it's angel food is what it is. Go get some manna every morning. Did they have to get up in the morning and make the manna? Did they have to prepare anything? Nope. They just had to go collect it. It was a gift, another gift of grace from God saying, Here's another gift to you. Just making sure you understand. I'm providing for you. Even when you whine and make me the bad guy, I'm still full of grace for you. Isn't that awesome? Aren't you glad God doesn't take your whining so seriously? He just shuts you down. Right? He goes, no, let me help you. I'll help you through this. And he does. And it's not just a struggle from the Old Testament standards. In the New Testament, we find exactly the same thing. I'd like you to look at Galatians chapter 6 or chapter 1 with me for just a moment. Galatians chapter 1. We did a study in Galatians. Anybody know how long ago that was? How many of you were here when we went through the whole book of Galatians? Just a handful of them, I'm sure. The whole book of Galatians. Do you know it was 2013? Do you know that? 20, 2013. I thought it was like last year. <laughs> in my head, I'm like, Galatians is so stuck in my head. I was like, wow. That's... I kept looking at my going, no, it's not there, it's not there, it's not there. It's not there. Good gracious, where is it? It was way back in 2013. 
We did this whole study of the book of Galatians. The great book of, of grace. Galatians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul, in his introductory remarks, is just making a comment that's a common greeting that you give to brothers and sisters in Christ at church when you write them a letter. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. And then he says this phrase, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Full name, Lord Jesus Christ. When Paul says that, I love Paul. Paul says that, it triggers his brain to, to say, oh yeah, the Lord Jesus Christ, let me tell you who he is. Verse 4, he gave himself, gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of God the Father to whom is glory, to whom be glory forevermore. So Paul, in just thinking the name of Christ as he's, He's probably talking, and, and one of his secretaries, one of his guys, is writing this letter to the Galatians for him. And somehow, when his brain hears the word "Lord Jesus Christ," he literally goes, oh, "He gave Himself for us. That's who He is. He's the one who gave Himself for us, so that for our sins, so that He could rescue us from this present evil age. Right? That's who Christ is. When you hear the name Christ, when you hear the name Jesus." Even when somebody says it under their breath as a curse word, try to let it trigger something like that in you because that's, that means you're getting grace now. It means grace is absorbed into your life now. When you hear his name, you go, oh yeah, he's the one. He is my savior. He's my rescuer, my redeemer. He's the one. So Paul's got this beautiful moment of grace. But he's writing a letter to this church, these churches, plural, in Galatia. It's a region. And when he went through and, and launched all these little churches in Galatia, but he preached the pure gospel, right? And, and clear that God's grace saves us through Jesus Christ, his only son who died on the cross for our sins. But then this other group of teachers called the Judaizers, weird name, the Judaizers came in right behind him and said, hey, Paul's right about a lot of that, but grace isn't all you need. You need law. You need some rules to go with that. And so they began to lay down some rules and try to teach the Galatians who, by the way, were set free from their sin by grace. They started teaching them that you also have to have, like your, you have to obey some of the food rules of the Old Testament. The Jewish food rules are really important. And if you're not obeying those, then you're not, you're not under grace and you're not under the full measure of God's blessing. There's this dress code that God had in the Old Testament. If you're not doing that, if you're not behaving like the Jews behaved in their dress codes and in their food and in their activities in the temple, if you're not behaving that way, you're really not saved. You know what they were doing? They were adding to grace. Grace says Jesus did all the work and you don't have to do anything. Right? That's what grace says. The Judaizers say, no, you got to do more. Now, we have a thing that happens in our culture. This is New Testament. We're in New Testament now. So here's the, here's the grace moment for us. We get saved by grace. We collect up as a group of grace believers, right? But then we start thinking in our heads, well, if you're truly saved, there's a certain way you should dress or act. There's only certain kinds of music saved people listen to. There's only certain kinds of places saved people go. There's only certain kinds of, whatever the parameters we put out there are. 
know, only saved people only vacation in these kind of places, right? So when a saved person tells you they're going to another kind of place, you go, a what? You're like, well, now you're questioning their salvation. But salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. It's not about behaviors. But we love to create a list, kind of a guideline list. When I was growing up, it was a huge deal, a huge deal, that, you know, Christians had to have their guys had to keep their hair cut short, didn't have long hair, the crazy Kendall hippie rebel that he is, didn't have long hair, right? I mean, there's no way Kendall could have been considered a Christian at this church. I'm just picking on our church here when I was growing up. They would have, man, they'd have had you in the back, hogtied you and cut it all off. It just would have happened here. So we didn't have long-haired people at Northside, long-haired guys at Northside, because it was one of those Christian things, you know? Christians don't have long, crazy hair like that. You know what that is? It's exactly the problem that happens with the Judaizers. It's when we start adding to grace. And we have a problem with doing that. That's why Paul writes in the same text that we just read, where he says, Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins, verse uh, three, 4, that we might, he might rescue us. Verse 6, he says, I'm amazed that you're so quickly deserting him who called you by grace for a different gospel. I'm amazed. That you keep trying to find a way to make yourself, your gospel of grace into something that looks man-made. I'm amazed that you keep trying to twist this. He actually says it even stronger when you get down to, to verse chapter 3, verse 3. He says, you foolish Galatians. who That's the Greek word moron, moranos. You morons, that's what he's saying. You morons. Who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, that you're now going to be perfected by the flesh? Do you think seriously that you could work your way into the promised land? You could work your way out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land? You can work your way out of your sin nature into a good person? No. Nobody can work their way out of sin nature into a good person. You need a redeemer, a rescuer. And then when you get rescued, you need to quit trying to figure out how to work your way into his good graces because the whole point was he gave you the grace to be in his graces and now you're in. What you need to do, this is the whole point of the day. There's a lot of blah, blah, blah to get you here, right? What you need to do is fall in love, I mean love, with the one who did that. Fall in love with the one who took you out of sin and into grace, who's given you a freedom from your sin nature, says you don't have to wallow in sin all the time. You don't have to live to the consequences of it or the pains of it if you'll just follow me on this journey. Follow me and I'll set you free from that. And all I want you to do is love me with all your heart. Soul, mind, and strength. And when you fall in love with me, you'll learn to love other people. Because when you love me, you love others. That's what it means to be devoted. Christ was fully devoted to us. And he's asking us to be fully devoted to him. And Paul's saying to the Galatians, who has bewitched you that you want to go backwards into that? Why do you want, the, why do you want to try to earn something with your flesh? There's no good in us. None. You can't earn it. I'm not going to go to heaven because I'm a preacher. 
Because, you know, I, I accepted Christ as a little kid and, and grew up in a good church and received a call to ministry right here at the altar and went to Bible college and, and I've been to mission fields and I teach in, you know, rehab centers. I'm not going to go to heaven because of that. I'm going to go to heaven because He loved me. He justified me. He died for me. He paid for my sins. And He set me free from my sin, sin nature. It's not because of anything I did. I didn't do anything to get into heaven except follow Him now. Trust Him as my Savior and follow Him. That makes sense to you? We forget how simple grace is and we love to make it complicated. I really think it's because it, it pushes our self-worth. I think we try to make ourselves feel a little more worthy. I'd be a little more worthy if I could find something I did good for God. If I could just get a little check mark going, me and God got this check mark going, hey, you know what I did this month? You know what I did last year? You know what I did year before? You know what I'm going to do next year? It's all works for God. I'm working for God. Working for God. Working for God. God loves me more than He loves you because I work for God. No, no, no. It doesn't ever work that way. There's no check and balance system. Love Him. That's what He's asking you to do. I set you free. You didn't even need an army to get free. And even when the army was attacking you, I protected you with a pillar of fire, and then I gave you a place to go, and then I covered them up, and you didn't even need an army. I got, he's going, I got this. Why would you turn, want to go back to something that's unhealthy for you? Our nature is to find a way to feel better about ourselves by proving our worth. But your worth is never in you. It can't be. You know where your worth is? Totally in Christ. That's why Paul says, God forbid that I would boast in anything, in anything except the cross. That's where my worth became worthy. That's where he paid for everything for me. He loved me there. And he loved me passionately there. John 15, 6, apart from Christ, you can do nothing, nothing. So I'm asking you to start this new year's first sermon of 2019. I'm asking you just to go crazy loving grace. Man, just fall in love with what he did for you. Don't forget what he did for you. Look at the cross all the time this year. I would ask you to take your little digital calendars out. Everybody keeps track with their calendars nowadays. However you can do it to once a month minimum, once a month, read something and study something on the cross. And what happened at your grace moment when he paid for all your sins? Lord Jesus Christ, who rescued me from my sins? Once a month, make sure you're focused there. So grace never slips far away from you and you don't start trying to earn something or trying to make yourself worthy in some other way or trying to create a, a worth for other people. The only way this person can be good is if they would act like I want them to. No. They're good in Jesus. If they can get, if they'll fall in love with the same Jesus you're in love with, by the way, you're supposed to be the model of that. They're supposed to see how much you love him. When I was speaking at the home of grace yesterday, we just kind of got into a bunch of that. I did a little bit of this with them. And and, uh, and I challenged them that if they would, would build a notebook around the cross. Y'all know I have a notebook, couple of them in my office that are all the things I can find out. Every hymn I read, every song I hear, everything I can capture and put in there, i got all these poems and hymns and stories and teachings on the cross and a whole section on what, what Christ went through physically as a doc, the doctors write about it. Um, everything I can do, I just make this big notebook about the cross. And I challenged them. I said, if y'all want, if you want to really get focused on it, get your notebook and just start adding stuff. It's a great way to do it, by the way. And uh, a number of them took my email and 
And then I was going back last night to help uh, Jack Skinner with their service there. So I went ahead and made some of those notebooks. And, and I was fascinated when some of the girls came up and said, we, I spent the day, one girl said, I spent the day thinking about the cross. And all I can do is tell you I love Jesus more today than I've ever loved him in my whole life. I was like, man, my heart was pounding on my chest. I'm like, that is how it's supposed to work. Grace is supposed to so get a hold of you that you just know you're so loved by Him, cared for, protected by Him. You don't have to work for anything in your spiritual life anymore. You just have to love Him and love others. And you're free to love others because of that. I want to end today with this verse, uh, Hebrews chapter 13. We need to honor and glorify Him through this devotion. But Hebrews 13 verse 9, this would be a great memory verse. It, and all you got to do is get the first part. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by ceremonies. That's all you need right there. It's good to be strengthened by grace, not by ceremonies. You cannot strengthen yourself by a, a series of obedient steps that sort of work into a ritual that make you feel like a better person. That doesn't strengthen you. What strengthens you is absorbing grace. Peter says we should... We should seek to, to know and understand grace. We should grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Grow into it. Let it grow this year, will you? God is fully devoted to you. Fully devoted to you. How do I know? Jesus Christ himself left heaven, came and stood next to us. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve broke everything. Remember the whole broken series we just got out of? They broke everything. They broke mankind. They broke per perfect creation. It's like, oops, God, we messed up bad. You know what God did when they broke that? Beat them down? No. He actually shows up to meet with them still. Same meeting place, by the way. He sought them out. He not only sought them out, He searched their hearts with them to say, what have you done? So He got them to, to evaluate a little bit of that. And then He protected them. By the end of the story, He says, look, there's going to be some pain and suffering caused by what you did. You, you've sinned. And it's going to create a whole different place where life's going to get hard. Sin nature's going to come in. Thorns and thistles, judgment, pain and childbirth. But you're still going to have children, by the way. The population of the earth is still going to grow through the two of you. You're still going to do things that you love and be with family. And, by the way, I'm going to, I'm going to put a... I'm going to bump you out of the garden, evict you from the garden... I'm going to put a guard there so you can't get back in because that temptation is too great for you. He actually protected them from their own selves. They couldn't do that. So in the garden itself, he's going, grace, grace, grace. By the way, a seed of this woman's going to one day crush the head of that serpent and set us all free from all of this. Because one day we're going to live in heaven, by the way, where there is no more sin, no more sorrow or sadness. That's pure grace. It's good to let your hearts be strengthened by grace. Do you agree with that truth? Can we just say the first part just to, just to the comma right here? Let's say it together. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace. One more time, a little more confident. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace. Please read and study on grace and the cross.